Well, good morning again. Glad you're here, whether you're here or online. You know, uh, first service, I told everyone, you know, you guys are brave and courageous for showing up on Time Chain Sunday. The few, the proud, getting up early and doing it. But really, you guys are the smart ones. I mean, why would you come to first service on Time Chain Sunday? You know what I mean? Room full of geniuses, I'm sure. So uh, we're in this series called The Story of the Bible. And if you open your Bible, and I know that many of you don't do it in a paper version, but, you know, there are two very clear, distinct sections of the Bible. The Old Testament, which is essentially the story of God's relationship and his covenant with this family, this group of people called the Israelites, that leads up to the coming of the time of Jesus. And the New Testament, of course, is not about one specific nation, one political nation. It is really about the story of God's invitation to invite all people to come and be a part of his kingdom or community in a relationship with him through Jesus. So we've come to a pretty, an interesting moment in the story of the Bible. This is the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's a period of about 400 years. So historically, this is the moment that, or the time that happens from the moment of Malachi as a prophet teaching and giving his, the words from God, the last words from the Old Testament, and this long period of silence until we come until, to the time of Jesus. But during that time, during that 400 years, there are no prophets or prophecies, no angels coming from heaven, telling people, like giving people a message from God. No books of the Bible being written, just silence. And you know, it doesn't take very long with silence and things get awkward and uncomfortable. And you start wondering what's going on. And so what we're looking at is trying to figure out what's the purpose of this long period of silence and how could it possibly help us better understand the story of the Bible? One of the things that's pretty clear when you look through the pages of the Bible is that there are many stories, and we've looked at many of them. But just let me say, don't be fooled into thinking that those stories are things that we would look at sort of like Aesop's fables. So when we hear the story of, of Adam and Eve, we might be led to think that we see their story and we think that the takeaway is if you do something bad, God's going to punish you, kick you out of his garden, he's going to make you pay. Or when we see the story of Noah, we might think, well, you know, if you're one of the good people, God's going to save you. Now, don't get me wrong because there are life lessons, there are things that we can take from the lives of those people and I think we're intended to But here's what we could miss. There's something bigger. The story, the the story of the Bible, I think really could be summarized into this. God loves us. And he chose us to be in, of all of creation, chose us to be in relationship with him. And he loves to be in a, a relationship where we're 
We're talking and we are together in a real way. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Walking and talking with God. And all of that was lost because of sin. And because there's no way that you and no way that I could ever change our past or undo the sin that is between us and God, God's plan from the very beginning, knowing that all of us would sin, he created the remedy that he would bring a savior into the world who would take away our sin. And if we could wrap our mind around the fact that he loves us that much and accept by faith that he wants to be in relationship with him, we can have that relationship restored with him. So all of those stories essentially are pointing to this one narrative that makes the Bible make sense which is part of the reason why this is, series is called The Story of the Bible, Not the Stories. Trying to make sense and see the line that brings all of these things together. Just for one minute, I want to like connect a couple of dots. If you went way, way back into the Old Testament, Daniel mentioned someone named Abraham. God came to him and made a promise and said, it's gonna be your family. You're going to be my people. And one of your descendants is going to be the one who saves the world. Very soon, Abraham's family was in the country of Egypt as slaves, just like God had predicted. And they were there for 400 years, being dominated by the nation of Israel with only silence, nothing from God. What does God do? He sends a savior by the name of Moses. Moses leads those people to freedom. And he is the Savior, which it parallels almost perfectly with a moment that we're in right now in the story, this intertestamental time, this 400 years of silence while God's people are scattered in captivity. And then you're going to see next is the coming of a Savior named Jesus. And those parallels are not coincidences those are the true moments, I think, that God helps us see the story as one cohesive unit that makes sense and believable. When Darren talked last week uh, about the prophets, he said that when you see prophecies fulfilled, you recognize there is a believability about the Bible. But I have to tell you, there are some things, like some of the specific prophecies that I see in the Bible, and I'm thinking, so for example, when it says that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem, and lo and behold, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, I can't help but think, like, but maybe, could it have just been a coincidence? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, strange things do, people do win the lottery, so to speak. Like, once in a while, something happens, and you never would have thought it. But this is a moment where I think God shows his story is a cohesive unit because what he, he foreshadowed with the story of Moses and this intertestamental period, I think is far more than a coincidence. And it makes God's story believable, not because it's only talking about naming one city where someone would be born, but God has orchestrated centuries and centuries of a plan where we can see a parallel that helps his story to make sense. So what is it? I mean, if we were going to think about those moments of our faith being built by seeing God's story as a cohesive unit, 
Those are helpful to us, but I think that God had something much, much more important than just a clever or compelling story. I think what he wants us to see in these times are far more than just the line. There is a practical reality historically that has meaning for us. So when God was fulfilling this plan in this period called the intertestamental period, he reveals something unique and special to a man by the name of Daniel. And this is the one that you know, the same Daniel who was in the lion's den and in the fiery furnace. If you've heard Bible stories, that might resonate or bring back a memory. This is the Daniel who, when you look at the story of the people of Israel, they're in captivity during this long 400-year period. Daniel is an Israelite who is being held captive in the country of Babylon. And there is a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And this king has a dream. And in his dream, he he recognizes that there's something important about this, and he calls all of his wise men together. I want all of my tellers and seers and all the people who could possibly help me understand the meaning of my dream to come together and help me interpret it. So he calls them all together, and very quickly, the tables turn because These men come prepared to impress the king and tell the meaning, but the king says, because you're wise, I don't want you to only tell me the meaning of the dream. I want you to first tell me the dream. And all the wise men say, well, like, king, we we can't tell us the dream and then we'll tell you. No, if you're wise men, you tell it. So the king was upset because no one could help him understand the dream, and he's literally ready to kill all of the wise men who were there before him until someone says, wait a minute, I know a guy. And they go to Daniel, one of these men held captive, and they bring him to the king and they say, you know what, this guy can interpret dreams. This guy can probably tell you the meaning And what is you're supposed to know and do from your dream? So Daniel's standing before the king, and he's very clear in saying, I want you to know that the wisdom or any interpretation does not come from me. The God, my God, is the only one who can interpret dreams. So anything that I tell you is actually coming from him. So the king tells Daniel his dream. And in Daniel chapter 2, excuse me, the king does not tell Daniel. Daniel tells the king his dream. In Daniel chapter 2, here's what Daniel says to the king. He says, in your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, Its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. 
The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. I love it that Daniel uses that plural. Now we will tell the king what it means. He goes on and he says, Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you ruler over all the inhabited world and even put the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise and take your place. And after that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will, will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything that it strikes. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing that the showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and the meaning is certain. In this dream, God is revealing through Daniel to the king what's going to be happening in the next few centuries of time. And it is a time that includes this intertestamental period. So as Daniel begins sharing this, there's something that I think is unique and I love about this is that this specific prophecy is something that if you, if you overlay it with world history from any world history textbook, you will see the same story being told. Not just fulfilled theologically, but it is the story of the world that everyone tells. So God begins to unwrap the meaning of these kingdoms and how they have been designed to prepare the world for the coming of the Savior. So he begins by talking about this empire, Babylon, the current world power led by Nebuchadnezzar. And what happens is, Daniel is pointing out that this man, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonian empire they have fulfilled God's prophetic word that the nation of Israel is going to be scattered. And that's exactly what happened as Assyria and Babylon and Persia, and these other countries begin to take control of them. God's people have been displaced from their own land and they've been moved to these other countries as captives, just like God had said. But Daniel's quick to point out that the meaning of the next kingdom is that as the Medo-Persian kingdom is established, they are going to completely destroy the Babylonian empire. They are going to become the next world power. 
And as they do, as a, as a king by the name of Cyrus takes control, he still has these people of God in captivity, but he handles it very differently. Instead of just keeping them in his country, in the Medo-Persian empire, Cyrus decides that he's going to send the people of God back to their own country, and he is even going to pay from his treasury to rebuild the temple and to allow them to reestablish the sacrificial covenant relationship that those people had with God long before. So Cyrus has brought all of the people back and gathered them in their country, Israel, so that they are prepared and ready for the coming of the Messiah, so they can witness the coming of Jesus that is ultimately the fulfillment of God's story in the Bible. So it's, that's kingdom number one and number two. As we come to the third kingdom, Daniel says that this belly of bronze is, now this, this one isn't named. The others are named specifically. Babylon, you are the head of gold. The Medo-Persian empire is going to be second. Although he doesn't name the Greek empire, we know through world history that's what, what's next. Through the work, the military work of Alexander the Great, at age, like age 33, he has literally conquered the world. And even if you don't really love history, you probably remember that name, Alexander the Great. But his, his conquest was about much more than just a military overtaking of the world. Alexander wanted everyone in the world to sort of be Hellenized or be Greekified. He wanted Greek culture to be so pervasive that the entire world was essentially one. There was a, a unity of culture in the world. And what that led to was Alexander essentially imposing his language on everyone in the world. Anywhere that he had conquered, he expected Greek to be spoken which was interesting because this set the stage for when Jesus came and there was a common language so that when the story of Jesus was being told throughout the world, there were far less barriers to people knowing the story of God, that they were loved by him and he wants them back because people could communicate easily. So unbeknownst to him, he was easily fulfilling what God had designed to prepare the world. So the last kingdom that Daniel describes is the Roman Empire. Again, not named, but it's easy to see that when Rome took over the world, they were the next world power, and they also began to, maybe you could say inadvertently, fulfill the prophecies that God had made about how Jesus would come to the earth sometimes in very small and simple ways, and sometimes in grand and profound ways. But the Roman system of taxation and census taking, that's the reason that Mary and Joseph, who lived in Nazareth, the reason that they came to Bethlehem was to pay taxes because Augustus had said all the world would be taxed, and everyone went to his own hometown so why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? Rome fell right into God's hands, you could say. Rome was also the, 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 the empire that had perfected the process of execution that we call crucifixion. 
which you can see from the beginning of God's story when God said way, way back, cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. And all through the story of the Bible, we see that this this prophecy that there was going to be someone who would be brutally beaten, someone by whose stripes we would be healed, someone would be crucified, that's because that was what Rome was essentially built to do. Rome did did far more. They built 250,000 miles of roads, 50,000 of which were paved and many are still literally being used today. Again, opening the door, like you could say, no pun intended, paving the way so that when people begin to travel and tell the good news after Jesus had come, this Pax Romana or the Roman peace would give them the opportunity to travel worldwide and tell people, someone has come to the earth who loves you. Someone come to save you. And we want you to know the story. And the church began to explode throughout the world. So keep in mind, you might see the four kingdoms named with the statue, but Daniel says there's another one. The one that is probably the most important in this story is that rock not cut by human hands that would destroy all of these political empires. Daniel says, this is the one kingdom that God himself will establish, not a human kingdom, not a political empire, and this will be a kingdom that will never be conquered or destroyed. That's the kingdom Jesus came to establish. And we're now 2,000 and some years into that thing that we call the church, the establishment of God's kingdom, with no sign of stopping. G.K. Chesterton once said, at a number of points in history, the church has gone to the dogs, and every time it was the dogs who died. This is a kingdom that is never going to be conquered or destroyed because this is God's kingdom that we are all invited into. So why? Why the 400 years of silence? I think God was showing the integrity of his story. I don't think it's a coincidence that the story of Moses matches this intertestamental period. I think that was on purpose. And I, I don't think God was just giving us a history lesson of what's going to happen with different world powers. But I do think he wanted us to see that no matter who you are in this world, his plan will not be stopped and it will continue on with or without you. And he wants it with. But above all that, I think you could say that this is about God's one desire to restore all of us, every single one of us, to that right relationship with him. More than everything else that we see, he is saying, I care about you. And I care that you are back into a right relationship with me. That is essentially why this story has been told. If you look at Romans chapter 15, verse 4, it kind of puts that into a nutshell and clarifies exactly what God was up to for us. He says, For all those words which were written long ago are meant to teach us today that when we read in the scripture of the endurance of men and all of the help that God gave them in those days, we may be encouraged 
to go on hoping in our time.